So we're continuing in Romans. Hopefully you grabbed one of those scripture journals or you brought your Bible or you're opening up that um, passage in your phone. And we've been saying that Romans, one, one of the things that we, we can definitely say about Romans, it's a thorough explanation of what Christians call the gospel, uh, the good news. And we found out last week that this good news is about a rescue, a salvation. That's what salvation means. Uh, that God is staging a rescue. And usually when there's a need for a rescue, we recognize that need. That if we've failed a a test, we know we need the rescue of the professor grading on a curve. That if we have lost our job, we know we need the rescue of unemployment benefits. Uh, If we are standing on the top of our roof and the water is rising, we know we need the rescue of the lifeboat when it comes by and offers us a ride. The predicament is obvious, and so because the predicament is obvious, the rescue and the need for rescue is obvious. Uh, That's not true about those who are in a spiritual predicament. Um, Their predicament is more like freezing to death, which is... An image I used last week, I talked about the little two-year-old, Carly, who uh, spent six hours on her front porch in sub-zero weather and slowly uh, froze to death, and about 20 medical professionals worked for hours to rescue her from that predicament. And so, our spiritual predicament is much like that. The closer we get to freezing to death, the less aware we are of our need for rescue. This is what is being described in Romans 1, this kind of spiritual freezing to death. Now, human beings are messed up. I think most people believe that. And the the couple of things that that we try to work through is, well, what, what is the problem and what is the remedy? What is the problem, right? Is it psychological? Is it sociological? Is it political? Is it economic? Is it educational? And then once we kind of diagnose the problem in some of those categories, then we figure out the the remedy, right? We figure out uh, we need therapy, or we need more awareness of sociological power dynamics, or we need better legislation, or we need more government funding, or or we need improved education, right? We, we, We figure out the root, and then we come up with the remedy. And all these things matter, but are they really the root and the Scripture says, no, it's, the root is spiritual. The root is spiritual. And so the next four sermons are really root remedy sermons. Paul spends a lot of time in the opening chapters here to really drill down into the root of the problem. Right? What is the problem? Why, what, what is the root problem of, of human beings And then what is the remedy? And so he speaks of the root here in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he lets us know that the root of our problem is is related to a relationship with God. How, How we are... Uh, experiencing God, 
It's a very God-centered conversation, this whole chapter. And so, the reason for this problem is uh, that, that God is justly punishing sin. That's the root. And that just punishment of sin is known as wrath. And this is how he opens this, uh, this, this section, this verse 18. This God who created human beings, this God who is a loving Father, this God is also a just judge. And He is meeting out punishment for sin. And that is known as wrath. And it is right for Him to do that. This is not God being in a bad mood. It's not God being cosmically cranky every now and again. We, we, we learned last week that, there, that, that there's a righteousness being revealed in the gospel. That God is right and He does right. And so He is being right and He's doing right when He's meeting out punishment for sin. He reveals that condition that's worthy of just punishment by using two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is our condition, and it points to the the vertical relationship that a sinful human being has with God. They are ungodly. They, They have rebelled against God. There's a break in the relationship that they have with God. But it's also resulting in unrighteousness. That's more of a horizontal kind of description. So not only are they being sinful, they're acting sinful. They are ungodly and they are unrighteous. Just as we said that God is being and doing righteously, we are being and doing unrighteously. And that's worthy of wrath. Now, we hear that and we say, I mean, Paul, can you give me some evidence for that? I mean, aren't human beings basically good? And Paul, I think, would say, I'm glad you asked. Let me show you verse 19 and following. And so, he begins to describe ungodliness. And so, if you're looking for kind of two categories here in this sermon, there's um, text about ungodliness, and then there's text about unrighteousness. So he opens up in 18, ungodly, unrighteous, and then he describes ungodliness, and then he describes unrighteousness. So in his description of ungodliness in verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul starts his argument about ungodliness by stating that God has clearly revealed himself in the creation. He's saying God has created a neon sign, aka the universe, that points to the reality of God, the Creator, that the beauty and the complexity and the enormity of creation points to the reality of God. Sometimes this is called the watchmaker argument. A guy by the name of William Paley in the late 1700s made this argument, and he described it this way. He said, I'm walking through the woods. I stub my toe on a rock. I don't think, oh, I wonder who put this rock here in the woods. But if I'm walking through the woods and I stub my toe on a golden watch, I do think, 
who put this watch here? I wonder whose watch this is. I wonder who made this watch because it's beautiful and it's complex. And Paley made the argument, we should be thinking the same way about creation. We see its beauty. We see its complexity, its enormity. We should be thinking, who made this? There must be a personal divine being out there that has created all things. Now, we know that not everyone looks at creation and thinks that. Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist, he wrote a book entitled The Blind Watchmaker. And it was his argument that without any divine intervention, evolution over billions of years, within billions of universes, created the golden watch of our creation. And so, You could push that back on Paul and say, well, Paul, not everyone thinks the way you do. Not everyone looks at creation and thinks, oh, there must be a God. What do you say to that, Paul? And he would say, I'm glad you asked. And starting in verse 21, Paul gives a psychological and spiritual expose of the fallen human being. And here's what he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, notice the God-centeredness of Paul's argument. We're, We're still in the ungodly category he's describing. He's describing the internal life of a fallen, sinful human being, an ungodly human being, And he says the ungodly don't honor God. And when you don't honor something or someone, you're not ascribing the the appropriate weight or worth of that person or thing. That's what it means when you don't honor something. A few, actually several months ago, I was a part of an installation worship service for Joe Green, who became the pastor of Second Baptist uh, in South Hadley. And This is a very special service on a Sunday afternoon, and there were many ministers that were there that had been invited, and we all get there, we all sit down, and then they start introducing all of us, and they're introducing where we are pastor, and they're introducing our credentials, and they're having us stand up, and they're giving us the golf clap as we stand up, and it was like, wow, what is going on here? Well, they were honoring us. They were honoring the the pastors. They were honoring the ministers. And they were saying, these guys have worth. These guys have weight. And we want to acknowledge that. Now, I'm not sure that ministers and pastors should always be honored like that. But God should. He should be honored. His worth. His weight. But ungodly human beings don't acknowledge His worth and His weight. Not only do they not honor Him, but they don't thank Him. They don't acknowledge that God created everything, and therefore God is the provider of everything, right? If He's the creator of everything, He's the provider of everything, and therefore it's appropriate to thank Him. And Paul says that ungodly people don't. They don't do that. They don't thank Him. They look around at everything, and they say, oh, this just must have happened, and it's all mine. I can have it. Whatever I can get my hands on, it's mine. They like, say, that's, that's what ungodly people, that's the way that they think. They don't 
thank God. And he goes deeper. He goes into their thinking. He says their thinking is futile. Now, if something is futile, no matter how hard or how long you work at it, you cannot get your desired objective. Some of you have been working on some homework that feels that way. Some of you, your job feels that way. No matter how long or how hard you work, you can't seem to get the objective. And here, he says that their thinking is futile. No matter how long or how hard they try to think through the problems of the world and how to solve the problems of the world, they, they can't get the desired objective. They're, they're spiritually freezing to death. They're, they're going through hypothermia Spiritual hypothermia stage one, spiritual hypothermia stage two. And, and, and the further down that, that, that road they go, they, they, they become less and less able to think clearly. And they think things like, yeah, I know there's beauty and complexity and enormity in the creation, but I think it just happened. And I think I'm king of all of it. What are they thinking? It's futile thinking. He goes deeper still. Now he's moved from thinking to the heart. When he gets down into the heart, he sees that the heart is foolish. Now, fools know what's right, and they refuse to do it. Simple people don't know what's right, and so, of course, they don't do it. But fools know what's right, and they choose not to do it. This is what he's talking about when he says they suppress the truth. It's like the truth keeps bubbling up, and they're like, nope, I'm going to push that down. They know what's true, but they refuse to do it. Not only is their heart foolish, but their heart is dark. Darkness connotes evil, but it also describes this struggling to see things clearly. As Paul mills around in the human heart and sees the foolishness and he sees the darkness, he finally gets to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is a worship problem. This is what he's getting at when he says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's talking about worship there. He's peeled back all, all their unwillingness to honor God, unwillingness to thank God, the futility of their thinking, the foolishness of their hearts, the darkness of their hearts, and he gets down into the depths of the human heart, and he's going, oh, there it is. There it, it's a worship problem. They've exchanged the glory of God, the one who is worthy to have all worth ascribed to him. That's what worship means, right? It's ascribing ultimate worth to God. That's worship. And instead of seeing His glory and responding with worship, they exchange that ultimate glory with a lesser glory, the glory of created things. And they ascribe, ascribe ultimate worship to created things. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of glory in created things. I mean, God made these things, so of course they're glorious. Beautiful starlit skies, ocean views, mountain summits. These things are glorious. Human beings are glorious, powerful, smart, beautiful, sexual. It's, it's, it's glorious. Even creeping things have glory. I mean, there's scientists over there at UMass that know the intricacies of lots of creeping things. And they behold those things and go, wow, this is amazing. They're glorious. 
And, and because of the futility of ungodly human beings thinking, the darkness and the foolishness of their hearts, they see that glory in the creation and they foolishly think that is ultimate glory. They don't, they don't look at that created glory and consider who made that and that the one who made it is worthy of worship. And they worship creation. Now, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, it's happening because of the wrath of God and human choice. Paul weaves these together. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so he, he describes the turning over, right? The, 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 the allowing of ungodly human beings to, to do the thing that they want to do. That is a part, not the only way, but part of how he expresses his wrath is letting them do what they want. But he's also describing it as a choice that they're making. It's a little bit like family movie night. Family movie night when the kids were younger and, you know, Melanie's made this amazing pizza meal and salad and we, we picked out a movie and we're all going to have this really fun time and there's ice cream and dessert and then there's that one kid and they don't like the movie that we chose and they're throwing an absolute fit because they don't like the movie and you're like, okay, listen, you, can, you get two choices. You can either stop throwing a fit and stay with the family and have a wonderful night of watching a movie and having pizza and ice cream, or you can go to your room. And you can stay in your room all by yourself, and you can pout and cry and thrash and do whatever you want. But these are your two choices. And he's describing God sort of turning human beings over and saying, you, you, you want to be separated from me? You want to sin against me? I, I'm, I'm going to turn you out. You, you go. And you rebel and you sin and you thrash I'm going to let you do the very thing that you desire to do. And, and, and so th there's this ongoing like degradation of the human body and the mind and the soul. And the, the thing that's happening is that we become whatever we worship. It transforms us one way or the other. I mean, consider 2 Corinthians 3.18 describing true worship. Paul writes this, he says, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Such a beautiful passage. You're beholding the glory of the Lord. You're ascribing ultimate worth. You're worshiping God. And it, it's transforming you. From one degree of glory to another degree of glory. And the opposite is true as well. If you're worshiping anything except God, it's, it's transforming you, and it's doing so in, in a way that's destroying you. Think about an addiction. Very, very, very similar kind of picture. It's the thing that, that you want the most. It's the thing that you will, you will do anything to get. And, and you, you will destroy relationships. You will destroy your vocation. You, you'll destroy everything to get that one thing. And it 
It defines you. This thing that you're worshiping, it literally defines you. And so what do you do in a situation like that where, where, where you, you've pleaded with someone and, and, you, and you've tried to help and you've encouraged them and you, you, you've sent them to rehab and, and, and it doesn't matter. They just are determined to stick with that addiction. You do an intervention. And you say, e- either you stop this or we're going to let you have that addiction. We're, we're going to turn you out. We're going to turn you over to that addiction. Why would people do that? Because they want that person to repent. They want that person to come out of that addiction and to find freedom and new life. And this is in part what's being described here. God, God turning us over to ourselves so that we can see ourselves for who we are and turn to Him for a remedy. We'll get back to that in a minute. So that's Paul's explanation of ungodly is in that text we just looked at. Then he moves to explaining unrighteous. So verse 26, he says, For this reason God gave them up, there's that phrase again, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is obviously a very controversial passage. But I do want you to see its context. I think this passage is often used out, just out of context. We, we, we just go to that passage if we want to, want to point to something, that, a place in the Bible that talks about homosexuality. But, but here we see uh, this, this idea of God giving them up, which we've already seen him use that language earlier. Um, and and what, what we see here is that he's using homosexuality as an illustration of what he just talked about. And, and the, the illustration is uh, this idea of natural and unnatural, of created order and fallen disorder. One of the most prominent things in the creation story is human sexuality. And there's an order in that sexuality. And sex is experienced between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's the biblical pattern in the created order. That is what is, quote, natural. That, that's what he means when he's using that word natural. Is he saying it's consistent with God's created order? And what's unnatural is what is disordered and represents what is being expressed in the fallen world. And so uh, he, he uses this as a way to point to the natural, unnatural discussion that he's just had in the previous passages. Because what is natural in the created order is that the creation worships the Creator. What is unnatural is that the creation worships creation. And human sexuality itself is supposed to tell that order. It's a parable. Right? We read in places like Ephesians 5 where Paul tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He's saying that human sexuality is, is this dance, this parable that communicates God's relationship with human beings. And so what is natural is that the creation would worship the creator, not creation worship creation. And so he uses human sexuality as a way to point to that natural order or that fallen disorder. Uh, I I can't spend like two hours on that passage, which I could, but if if you want to talk more about it, you can come to my 
4 o'clock Roman study this afternoon. And we, we'll do a little Q&A at the beginning of that study, uh, and we'll talk about it more. Um, as he uses that um, illustration, he's not saying that homosexuality is like the mother of all sins. He, he's not putting it in, in a different category. And oftentimes the church has done that, 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 it, that it's pointed to homosexuality as, as like some special category of, of, of really, really bad sin. And then every, every other sin is just kind of normal sin. And that was wrong. And so it, it, it is something that uh, many in the church wrestle with, this idea of, of experiencing same-sex attraction. I've walked with many a person who experiences that. And so that ought not be something that you read this and go, man, I'm in a special bad category. That, that's not at all what Paul is saying. And in a minute, he's going to say, here's all these other sins that are just as disorderly as homosexuality. But make no mistake, he's being very clear about the order of human sexuality. But he's also using it to illustrate the order of creation worshiping the Creator. He, he, he summarizes his argument in this way. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, so there's that language again, giving them over, giving them up. They were filled with, an, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So this is, man, the, the gavel comes down in this passage, and it's going to come down multiple times over the next few passages that we'll look at. And so he's, he's, he, he's made the case that God has revealed Himself in the creation and human beings have rejected that revelation. They have suppressed the truth of that revelation. And they have lived the disordered life of worshiping the creation instead of worshiping the Creator. And that that false worship is manifesting itself in a whole list of soul and community killing behaviors. And so he, he's gone to the root being worship. Right? And, and the ungodliness, and then he's pointed to the result of that root, which is unrighteousness. And not only are they doing these things, this is, this is again, this is like, he, he, just, he just comes at it again with, with another um, piece of evidence. He's like, not only are they doing these things, but they're applauding these things. They're, it's not like they're doing them in the dark and they know it's wrong, and they're like, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's not what's happening. They're doing it out in the light, and they're applauding it. Well done! Saying evil's good and good is evil. This, this is the predicament of human sin. And so, as you read that, it should cause you to awaken from your spiritual freezing to death and say, I need a rescue! And that's why Paul's saying all that stuff. He's not saying it so you feel bad or you, you, you despair, become depressed. He, 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 he's trying to awaken us 
out of our spiritual stupor so that we will take the remedy, we'll take the rescue that God is offering. Romans 11, he picks this idea up of uh, those who have been given over to disobedience. He says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that they, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. And so there he picks up that idea of, of turning over or consigning over to, to your disobedience. And, he, and he's saying, why, why is God doing that? He's doing that because He wants you to awaken to your need for remedy. He's offering mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is withholding wrath. That's what mercy is. And he's saying that there is mercy that God is offering. Yes, he is a just judge, and he is rightly pouring out wrath on sin, but he is also a merciful Savior King. Because how could he offer mercy? How could he both be a wrathful judge, but also offer mercy, a.k.a. the cross? Guys, this is what's happening at the cross. The just judge is pouring out wrath. And and the merciful Savior is offering forgiveness and reconciliation to the sinner, like you and me. This is the good news. And so you may say, well, okay, if I'm not a Christian right now, should I be afraid? Yes, you should. But you should do something that's going to feel very counterintuitive. You should run to God. I thought that sounds crazy. You're like, wait a minute. I thought God was wrathful. I'm like, He is, but He's also merciful. And so you, you, you see your, your, your predicament. You see the root as a false worshiper who doesn't ascribe worth to God and who behaves in ways that are dishonoring to God. And the remedy is run toward God. And the way He's able to give mercy is because of what Christ did for you on the cross. Receive that today. Receive it today. If you've not acknowledged your predicament and run to Him for remedy, go today. Receive that forgiveness. He offers it to you today. What if you're a Christian? What does this, what does this passage mean to us? Uh, it means a lot, but one thing is remember who you were before you met Jesus. You were in a frozen spiritual stupor. You, you, you were unaware of your state. You, you were dishonoring God. You were unthankful. You, your heart was foolish and dark. You, you were a false worshiper. That's who you were. And God in His mercy forgave you. He forgave me. He, he, he paid the penalty of one who is a false worshiper, the divine Son of God, paying the penalty of a false worshiper. And He he forgave us and brought us into a relationship with Him. So not only do we remember who we were, but now we remember who we are. God just didn't 
save us from false worship. He saved us to right worship. That's, that's partly why we have the gospel. It's not the only reason, but it's a big part of why we have the gospel. Is He's saving us to become right worshipers. When we were singing those songs earlier. We, we were displaying right worship. We were saying to the world out there, you know what? We're ascribing ultimate worth to God. He is the one who is the most glorious. Yes, His creation is glory. It's great stuff, beautiful stuff, complex stuff. We, we love that stuff, but we don't love it more than God. We're ascribing ultimate, gain, ultimate weight and worth to God. This is really the heart of, of the disciple, man. This is the fuel. This is the plutonium, man, that fuels us. Why we do what we do is, is our, our, our gospel-initiated worship, right? Tonight, we're going to be, the members are going to be you know, renewing our covenant. And one of the things in the covenant is about worship, and this is what we'll be saying. We'll, you'll, you'll hear this question. You'll hear, will you devote yourself to worship by seeking to continually surrender your entire life to God in response to God's initiation with you in the gospel and by worshiping God regularly with other members of Mercy House? If yes, then answer we will. That's, that's, we're going to say that today. 7 o'clock. And, and we're ascribing worth, ultimate worth, to God. And as we do that, it, it's so much a part of how we get transformed. It's, it's just like we, we talked about in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're, we're beholding His glory. And as we're beholding that glory and responding in, in worship, it's, it's transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. Our reordered worship is emanating from a heart that's, that's no longer darkened. It's, it's, it's no longer foolish. And, and, and our minds are being transformed, no, no longer thinking with, with futility, but now with the mind of Christ. Now living lives that are thankful to God and are giving honor to God. That's who you are, Christian. That's who you are because of what Christ has done at the cross. So with this in mind, let's go to God in prayer and worship to ascribe ultimate worth to Him. God, we thank you for this passage. This is a, it's a tough passage, but Lord, it's so much truth and such a great reminder of who we were, but also who we are. And so I, I, I pray there would be that sense of what you've saved us from and also a sense of what you've done for us in your mercy. And so Lord, we, we worship you this morning. We join those stars. If, if they're going to worship, then so will I. <laughs> because that is what is right and good. And it transforms us. It transforms us as individuals. It transforms our worshiping community here at Mercy House. And so we're so grateful uh, for that. And pray that that is who we would be, who we would, we would continue to become as we move forward in truth of the gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.